Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, descendants of people who have caused harm and those of people who were and are victimized often stand apart or in opposition. In these times, when efforts to address systematic racism are raised up, white people especially are called to process their continuing role. A new collection of essays takes on that responsibility. Whiteness is not an ancestor. Essays on life and lineage by white women explores that call and that space between. In this event, the editor, Lisa Iverson, is joined by two of the essayists. They discuss the role of whiteness in collective moments of immigration, colonialism, slavery, and war, and disentangle themes of innocence, grief, race, privilege, and belonging in their families and ancestries. Lisa Iverson is the director of the Center for Ancestral Blueprints. She was joined by author and activist June Blue Spruce and wilderness initiation guide Anne Hayden. University of Washington professor Bonnie Duran moderated the discussion. Town Hall Seattle and Third Place Books presented this event on February 11th. Town Hall's Ware Harmon introduced the program. Lisa Iverson is the director of the Center for Ancestral Blueprints and CAB Publishing. She is the author of 2009's Ancestral Blueprints, Revealing Invisible Truths in, Americans, in America's Soul. Her life and work are grounded in knowing that our shared humanity begins in family, and to that end, she lives with her husband and daughter right here in the Pacific Northwest. June Blue Spruce is a writer, intuitive healer, life coach, and systemic family constellations facilitator. Her work has been published in a poetry chapbook, several anthologies and journals, and scientific articles and publica publications such as New Spirit Journal, South Seattle Emerald, and the Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine. She writes about dreaming, healing, and social change on her blog, junebluespruce.com. Anne Hayden is a student of nature and the human heart. She has taught and mentored students in the eco-psych field through Fairhaven College at Western Washington University and Antioch College. As a trained initiation guide, she has guided nature-based experiential programs for groups and individuals through Northwest Soul Quest for 25 years. Her mystical relationship with nature began in the Colorado mountains as a child, was honed by her years of solitude in the Alaskan backcountry, and continues to source in her island home now here in the Pacific Northwest. Bonnie Duran, an Opelousas Cushada descendant, is a professor in the schools of social work and public health at the University of Washington. For over 35 years, her research, education, and direct practice has focused on Native Americans and indigenous peoples and other community communities of color. Dr. Duran is currently the principal investigator of two NIH-funded research projects in Indian country, working with the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, 22 tribal colleges, and University of Washington collaborators. The book, Whiteness is Not an Ancestor, Essays on Life and Lineage by White Women, is the subject of tonight's discussion. Please join me in welcoming the editor, Lisa Iverson, essayist June Blue Spruce, and Anne Hayden, and moderator, Bonnie Duran. Thank you so very much, Weir. We are so grateful for all of you at Town Hall staff and at Third Place Books for this partnership. So we're gonna start our conversation with Bonnie and I being um, in conversation a little bit about how we got here, how this book came into formation. Um, the short story is that I've been a psychotherapist for just under 30 years. A little over 20 of those, most of my work has been rooted in what's called family constellations or systemic constellations. It's a modality developed by a man named Bert Hellinger over 30 years ago with an acute awareness of the influence of historic trauma throughout the generations. That's a short story about that modality. And for me, um, how we got here tonight began really then with um, uh, leading a lot of groups, working in a lot of groups that I had the, um, I've had the honor of working with 
um, people who've experienced and have been drawn to um, make it a priority in their own lives and their families' lives to um, expand their capacities for being able to really acknowledge the truth of the landscapes that are there in our bodies, um, in our families' souls. Um, so in the States, for me, my attention um, for quite a long time has been on the fact that our country was formed out of disconnection from family. So the three movements of colonialism and slavery and immigration, disconnection from family is formative in those movements. And so it's challenging <laughs> to say the least for us to really acknowledge these histories when the focus is on the individual and there's this unacknowledged um, quest for belonging in all the wrong places. So the phrase whiteness is not an ancestor um, appeared about 10 years ago, working in a lot of groups that included working in Atlanta for many years. And it was just a good, good medicine kind of phrase. And so um, about a year and a half ago, I was leading a retreat. I was invited to Banff by uh, one of the contributors to this anthology. Um, Sonia Lee invited me there to lead a workshop on this topic. And while I was there, there was a dream that emerged. Um, I woke up with it one morning and this project ha had been delivered from the ancestral realms. And it was very specific and clear and that's how we got here. So um, we're so grateful that you're with us, Bonnie, to talk about this. Yes, and uh, I wanna say a few things. Uh, um, so I, you know, as you know, you all approached me a while before I had even read the book about maybe moderating because I've done a fair amount of work in Indian country on historical trauma. And that's, you know, what one of the core themes of the book are. But um, a few things that I would like to say about it. Uh, one is that it was so wonderful because it was only published, uh, you know, it seems like a few months ago. Mm -hmm. So all of the things that have happened, uh, you know, with the COVID worldwide pandemic and with the, uh, uh, you know, all of the George Floyd um, you know, uh, riots and, you know, the um, anti-racism and anti-sexism and all of the social justice work that has been done over the summer. And since, you know, that happened the summer of 2020, you know, you mentioned that and that actually is part of the um, background for, for writing this book as well. Mm -hmm. One other thing I want to say is, in addition to being an academic, you know, I wanted to say, uh, well, when I read the book, I was absolutely blown away. Mm -hmm. I have told everyone I know that they really need to get this book and read it. And um, one reason is because in addition to being an academic or I'm an ap academic, you know, I'm a first generation college student. I grew up pretty poor in San Francisco. Also, you know, um, a lineage of leaving Louisiana, the tribal communities of Louisiana for the, uh, for the uh, North or for the West, I should say. And, um, and um, when I, you know, I actually, right after I graduated from undergraduate school, I found my way to India and started meditating. And so I have, and since that time, you know, that has been one of my core uh, spiritual practices. And actually right now, in addition to being an academic, I'm a Buddhist minister. I'm on the Guiding Teachers Council at Spirit Rock Meditation Center. And I teach retreats, uh, you know, and, the, you know, I'm teaching retreat in September, uh, retreat is ceremony. <laughs> That's the title mm -hmm. of it. <laughs> teaching the Loving Kindness Retreat in July, if anyone out there wants to just sit down and open your and strengthen the, your heart in July, you can look that up too. But I think that's another reason why I love the book so much because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we know in our wonderful Western science that, mm -hmm. 
you know, Western science thinks everything is concepts and you count things and you name things. It has a certain way of creating the world and understanding the world. And all three of you and, you know, um, have talked about a healing that isn't connected to that. It's mm -hmm. connected to a body-based, place-based, mm -hmm. land-based a wisdom, you know, when we can connect with that wisdom arises. And that's what you're talking about, how to get wisdom to arise for healing and for belonging and connection. So deep bows to all of you for making that so explicit. That's why you have to read the book because you'll learn how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just, as we're, as you're talking, I'm just really so reminded of the conversations that we've had on the, the four of us on the way here, how, how wonderful they have been. And um, our conversations about uh, some of the things you're talking about that it also involves synchronicity yeah. and, and knowingness and the information that's held in the body and, and different ways of tracking time. It's, you know, <clears throat> it was, it was um, just about a year ago that I invited this group of women, I, I invited a dozen women um, to write essays for this anthology. Anne and June are two of 12 women who've written essays for this book. And, you know, just as you say, you know, we didn't know in here what the timeline was gonna like, what last year was gonna be like, um, we're having this conversation about whiteness in the middle of an impeachment hearing yeah. that's rooted in whiteness. The violence of whiteness has everything to do with the attempted coup. And, um, you know, we cannot afford to be asleep at the wheel <laughs> about the work that we have to do as a nation. And so I just feel like it's divine timing that we're having this conversation. Right. Yeah, so um, we could talk for hours on this, but we want to um, switch over to Anne who wrote a brilliant chapter. Oh my gosh, your chapter, I'm sure you know what part I'm talking about. I was a page and a half in when I got that one sentence about, about um, you know, your great-great-grandfather that totally blew me away. So why don't you read a little bit for us? Thank you so much, Bonnie and Lisa as well. Um, speaking of synchronicity, I usually live on the traditional lands of the Snohomish and Coast Salish people, but out of just a fluke, when we're doing this conversation, I am with family in order to help my newborn grandson in Colorado, and I'm on the traditional lands of the Cheyenne and Arapaho people. So as I read a part of my essay, you'll understand why that's so synchronistic for me to be here rooted in this land and speaking of this subject. So the <clears throat> title of my subject is In the Shadow of Mount Evans, living in a lineage of genocide, white privilege, and intergenerational healing. In November of 1864, a heavily armed U.S. volunteer militia force attacked a sleeping camp of Cheyenne and Arapaho people on the banks of Sand Creek in the territory of southeastern Colorado. The territorial governor had promised these friendly tribes protection if they camped near a designated fort and informed the military of their whereabouts. To signify that theirs was a peaceful encampment, one of the chiefs hoisted a US flag and a white flag of peace above his teepee as the troops descended on them. By the time the ensuing massacre had ended the next day, more than 200 people lay dead, mostly women, children, and the elderly. Known as the Sand Creek Massacre, this infamous atrocity took place during the tenure of John Evans, the territorial governor of Colorado and superintendent of Indian Affairs. 
His official proclamations earlier in that year had stoked settler hostility and were integral to the recruitment and organization of the forces that would carry out the massacre itself. After several congressional investigations, Evans was accused of lying to cover up his involvement and was asked to resign, which he did. Governor John Evans was my great-great-grandfather. I grew up in the fifth generation of this part of my family to live in Colorado on land that had been taken from the Cheyenne and Arapaho people through several treaties. Though he had only served in office for three years, both the Colorado history books and the family story glorified Governor Evans. There were many positive legacies that he left as a former physician, founder of two universities and hospitals, promotion of the Transcontinental Railroad, a prominent mountain is named after him. In my family, we felt deeply proud to be descended from this governor. His link with the Sand Creek Massacre was rarely spoken of in family circles. My grandmother and her two maiden sisters with tight lips maintained the governor's innocence and intimated that he and his political career were the real victims. Never speak of it again, said one great aunt. I had just turned 40 when I first became aware of a different version of the Sand Creek Massacre. I was appalled, horrified, devastated, and ashamed to learn that the history written by the victors of the Indian Wars on the plains in the mid-late 1800s were incomplete and inaccurate and had distorted the truth of John Evans's involvement. I learned that my family's illustrious ancestor bore a great deal of responsibility for the Sand Creek Massacre. I felt deeply ashamed to be part of a culture that had practiced genocide, displaced entire native tribes by stealing their land and marching them by foot across the country to live on reservations where there was little possibility of survival and taken their children far away to be raised in boarding schools the culture I had been born into, American culture and specifically that of the geographical West continued to perpetrate violence on other races, other spiritual traditions and other sovereign nations. Finally, instead of running or hiding, the better part of me turned toward wanting to know the truth of what had happened in 1864 and what could be done in my generation to address the devastating wrongs from the past. In the tradition of the Oglala Sioux Nation, it is in the fifth generation that a wrong can be healed. I was born into the fifth generation after John Evans. Beyond his official historical legacy, I have lived with a personal complicated legacy of shame with unspecified origins and a persistent sense of never belonging anywhere. My extended family grapples with alcoholism, suicide, infighting, exclusionism, confusion between perpetrators and victims, and mental illness, including depression, debilitating PTSD, narcissism, and bipolar disorder. At some point in my lifelong pursuit of well-being and wholeness, I began to suspect links between my great-great-grandfather's unspoken legacy and the difficulties that plagued my family. I eventually began to understand that the historical and current relationships between the indigenous people and the settler colonizers were bound together in intergenerational trauma. Working to become ever more aware of the complex racial legacy of my white ancestors is my work to do. I cannot address the wrongs of the 1800s nor take up my work as an anti-racist ally without acknowledging my ancestors' role in deeply understanding with heart, mind, and body how the culture of whiteness lives in me with all of its invisible privileges and domination patterns. That was very meaningful. When I read it, I was absolutely blown away. Um, so, uh, and uh, later on in the chapter, you talk about being welcomed into the Cheyenne and Arapaho community. Uh, and that was just so beautiful. As someone who lives in Indian country, I know this idea of that we are all relatives. It's also a deeply Buddhist idea too. So do you want to say a little bit about that, about how that 
maybe contributed to how you define what happened and then maybe how it contributes to your healing and gosh thank you bonnie um I have to say that I, I don't feel I was welcomed into their community, but, but the Cheyenne and Arapaho people were incredibly generous to welcome me and one of my cousins to accompany them on their first annual um, healing run for 200 miles from the site of the massacre into Denver. And it was an effort on their part, uh, an acknowledgement that healing doesn't happen in one culture. It has to happen in both cultures, all cultures, and particularly those that are bound together with trauma. And so um, I, I felt so honored to be able to travel with them and to learn from them and to listen and to grow my awareness of what life is like for them now because of what happened five generations ago. Right. And to really be open to what your life is like because of what happened five generations ago. And also since then, you know, I mean, those were particular, definitely uh, traumatic events that will absolutely leave a mark on our hearts and on our minds, you know, and um, actually, I remember when the idea of historical trauma first came out in Indian country. Um, it was in the 1980s, and a lot of people said, oh, that's just Indian folk tales. And then a few years later, epigenetics came out. <laughs> and epigenetics is a, you know, mm -hmm. scientific uh, genetic proof of that, you know, extreme harm in, in uh, former generations has an impact. It actually makes you more susceptible to uh, mental disorders and alcoholism and violence and things like that. So that happened for you and in your family. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure all of the Arapaho or a lot of the Arapaho and Cheyenne relatives as well. Yeah, historical trauma. So um, can you talk a little bit about how you were able to open to all of that? Was it difficult or you know, was there particular things that allowed you to open and to seek the healing from it or? Mm. Mm, great question, Bonnie. Um, I think I, I was raised in the mountains of Colorado, very close to the earth. And so when I first learned the truer history of the Sand Creek Massacre, the first thing I had to do was to go to the land itself. And so I took a journey there and arrived there at dawn and um, it touched the land where this massacre had happened. And in those moments, I felt the companionship of those who had been killed there. It was an amazing experience to be a white woman, a descendant of uh, the person who had set the stage for this massacre to happen and to feel such a sense of gentleness and healing come. At the same time, I felt deep shame, deep shame. And for years, I needed to do the healing work around turning and facing what had happened and acknowledging it. And it feels to me like so many of us white people and many of, of the authors in the book speak about shame. And yeah. that is one of the deepest, um, doors to healing that I can imagine is to turn and acknowledge what happened and love the humanity of the people that are my family. Oh, I love that. So you were able to forgive your, um, I guess, yeah, that was part of your healing is forgiving all of your relatives who were part of that, huh? Well, I'm not sure that forgiveness is actually part of it, but, okay. but there's a sense of, of, um, Acknowledging his humanity, I yeah. think, and acknowledging that he had his own life struggles, which I have delved into to find out what made this man who he was and capable of doing what he did, right. and to feel compassion for that and humility in the, in the face of our history, our joint history together. So I don't, I don't know about forgiveness, but it's um, a sense of compassion, if you will. Well, that was the predominant narrative of settler colonialism was that, 
you know, it's in the U.S. Constitution that Native people and Black uh, African descent people weren't even totally human, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, well, women couldn't vote till the 1920s, the Constitution, you know. Yeah, I know. And in particular, the, um, the settlers who were encouraged to go west were living with this worldview of manifest destiny, that exactly, it was yeah. God-given right that we should take over the continent. Destiny, yes. And so that was the waters they were swimming in, if you will, and they believed that, but there were many of them who did not see that it was right to uh, decimate the Indian cultures. Right. So it would have been possible for any of them to have turned a different direction. Right. And, you know, I just want to say that in my healing, you know, I also went through a period of deep healing and it was create, it was also associated with my land-based, body-based spiritual practice, mm -hmm. you know, it's not, you know, you can do, uh, <clears throat> you know, therapeutic talking about it and that's good, but, you know, there's something about just getting into your body mm -hmm. and, and just, you know, releasing all of that trauma and pain. Mm -hmm. So I had like an underlying sobbing. I did a lot of sobbing meditation for about five years mm -hmm. and it was excellent. You know, it was excellent. A lot of the time, I didn't even know why I was doing it, but I knew it was releasing, hmm. you know, intergenerational shame and, you know, uh, self-hate and, you know, wanting to be different. So mm -hmm. did you have, did you have any of that? Oh, did absolutely, you? Bonnie. Yeah. I, I would go out onto the land and just dig a hole and cry into it and sob yeah. and sob and sob and just allow the earth with her great heart and neutrality to say it, it, it just is, it yeah. just is. Yeah. And to oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Accept me as I am with all of my faults and my yeah. effort. Well, we are nature. We are the four elements, mm -hmm. you know, so. Mm -hmm. That's yep. right. We've got it in our bones and flesh. That, hey, when, you know, the guy who invented mindfulness meditation, the very first meditation he taught his son is that we are the four elements. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So yeah. thank you so much. And getting to June, who is incredible. Hot you know, on. your chapter absolutely blew my mind because you're into public health and you're into medicine and you talk in your chapter about Temple University Medical School, and I have a nephew who's going there right now, and I'm in pretty good contact with him. So I felt like, wow, you know, I didn't know the history that you so beautifully talked about. Uh, so um, please do share share your chapter with us. Thank you, Bonnie. I want to say thank you to you and to Lisa and to Anne and to all the folks at Town Hall and Third Place Books for all that brought us here in this moment. I am just so grateful to be here. So uh, the essay I wrote is, is titled, Warning Whiteness May Be Hazardous to Your Health. And I'm gonna read the beginning of the essay. I'll read a few paragraphs, then I'm gonna summarize some history um, just to save a little bit of time. And then I'll read a couple more paragraphs. My family had a skeleton in its closet. The skeleton's name was Oscar. Granddad used Oscar to teach his anatomy students at Temple University Medical School the structure of the skeletal system, the names of the bones. I have no idea whose bones these were. I assume this small person did not give consent. After granddad died, Oscar lived with one or another of my aunts and uncles in Swarthmore, a suburb of Philadelphia, where I and my siblings and cousins grew up. On my first visit home after leaving for college, I was startled to find Oscar hanging in the closet of my old bedroom. I arranged my clothes around this shrouded form. My grandfather's family came to America in the mid 1800s from coal country in Durham, England to seek better working conditions. My great grandfather worked as a blacksmith in Shenandoah, Pennsylvania, one step removed from the danger of the mines. My grandfather played in piles of coal tailings as a child. To save him from an underground fate, 
his older sisters who were school teachers, sent him to the Medico-Chirurgical College in Philadelphia. He graduated in 1899 and eventually headed the Department of Anatomy at Temple. Several years ago, as the last family members sold their home in Swarthmore, we decided as a family to donate Oscar back to Temple. It seemed like the right thing to do. I asked permission and forgiveness from the spirit of the person who once lived in these bones. My family had a second skeleton in its closet. This one wasn't visible to me until recently. It's the same one the American healthcare system tries to hide. That skeleton is whiteness. Granddad's family followed the upwardly mobile path of many white European immigrants in the 19th century, and so did the medical profession. When granddad's family arrived in Pennsylvania, a wide diversity of medical practitioners by healing method, race, gender, and class provided care for people in the US. Allopathic or regular doctors had not yet climbed to the top of the heap. Efforts by white male doctors to create an upper class medical elite like England's met fierce resistance. So um, just to summarize, so uh, the white male doctors banded together in the AMA starting in the mid 1800s. And uh, they at first had very little power but they kept at it and kept at it and uh, tried to restrict access to medical practice. And their efforts culminated in the Flexner Report which was commissioned by the Carnegie Foundation at the behest of the AMA and published in 1910. The author Alexander Flexner intended to improve medical practice and the overall health of the population, but the report had the impact of consolidating power in the hands of these white middle to upper class male allopathic physicians. And because of discrimination against black people in white medical schools, seven black medical schools were established by the black community at the end in the late part of the 1800s to fill the urgent need for more doctors. But racist policies at all levels ensured that the students were more poorly prepared for school because they didn't have as high quality education. The schools were underfunded. They, had, they lacked equipment. And so when Flexner, as part of a survey, came to assess those schools, he re recommended that five out of the seven close. And these closures had a devastating impact on the already low number of black doctors. So until the beginning of the civil rights movement, opportunities for black people to enter the field of medicine were severely limited. <clears throat> and because white doctors discriminated against black people, the lack of black doctors ensured lack of access to healthcare for black communities. But according to Dr. Avery Batts of the University of Washington, black doctors didn't just heal the person, they inspired and continue to inspire the next generation. They were conscious of their role in making significant social change. Imagine for a moment, the ability for a black parent in 1880 to have their child be seen by a black male provider, knowing that less than 20 years before, it would have been illegal for them to read. And that person stood a better chance of serving the doctor than being the doctor. At the turn of the century when grad, granddad graduated, a medical doctor while higher in status than a coal miner had nowhere near the status, power and income that one does today. Over the first two decades of his practice, the situation changed dramatically. Granddad was an early member of the AMA and he benefited from the organization's dogged and ultimately successful campaign to achieve hegemony for its members. My family's status, income and class standing, our ability to afford a big house in Swarthmore, abundant food, two cars, vacations at the seashore, tuition and room and board at an Ivy League college for me came in part from the exclusion of black people from medical practice. So that was the beginning of my granddad's career. It was the beginning of the modern phase of 
our deeply racist healthcare system, if we can call it a system. And it was the origin of my long and conflicted career as first a healthcare activist. And then I worked in the healthcare system for many years in a variety of roles. And now as a, um, as a healer in a, in a, in a different way. That's beautiful and so meaningful. I mean, I work in uh, public health too, and you know, we call the medical system the medical industrial complex. Exactly. Yeah, and uh, because we can mm -hmm. see very clearly when you're tracking uh, just how equitable the system is uh, and how good it is. I mean, you know, I really question, you know, as all of you do. I mean, that's one of the primary premises of. The essays is that the people who think that they're getting over and getting this great stuff don't realize just how also they're getting played by the same system but mm -hmm. they just have these crazy beliefs that being white is so much better and you know they don't realize that it does cut them off from their ancestors and mm -hmm. you know things like that but so you said uh, June uh, just now that you know, the civil rights movement was really a big change that allowed, um, you know, a lot more uh, African-American physicians, black physicians and other uh, physicians of color, mostly men for sure, to enter the system. But then you also told me that you just heard Ben Danielson speak. <laughs> and Ben Danielson, you know, many of us here in Seattle know is a, you know, really incredibly powerful physician who was in charge of, um, he uh, was, a, a, you know, a member of the Children's Hospital. Um, you know, that's where he was getting paid from anyway. But he ran the clinics in... Um, the Odessa Brown Clinic, yeah. Oh, they, oh, yes, yes, yes. So do you want to say yeah. a little bit about, um, you know, his very recent experience with all of these things as well, right? Yeah. So I just want to say one of the most stunning thing, well, the two most stunning things for me in writing this essay, first of all, is, I mean, I've, I came of age adjacent to the civil rights movement, the black power movement, the American Indian movement, the young lords, these powerful movements for racial justice. And I've been aware of these movements for decades. And yet it's taken me a long, long time to see whiteness, to really see it, to really perceive it, to really understand the way that it is in here and the way that it is in my family and in my community. Yeah. And the other thing is that just is so um, stark to me is the way that these actions by my grandfather and his colleagues 120 years ago, there's a straight line between that and the excess deaths of black people from COVID today, this very day, mm -hmm. and also indigenous people and brown people and all, all people of color. But I focus in the essay particularly on the impact of anti-black racism in healthcare. And, and I was part of a, uh, I was watching a, a webinar today sponsored by the King County, by King County Equity Now that talked about the depth and breadth and intensity of racism in the healthcare system in Seattle today. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Ben Danielson had to, had to resign from Children's, from Odessa Brown, where he was a beloved and mm -hmm. very important physician and um, influential person in the community and still is because he could no longer work in that system with integrity. And it's, you know, so the, you know, there's a lot to say about what's not right. And there's also these incredibly powerful movements springing up to address that, to, um, transform the system and to create alternatives. So there's a lot of energy happening that's really hopeful. And there's also, as we see in the news every day, there's just devastating impact of these exclusionary measures that happened. Thank yeah. you. 
Well, I want to ask you, um, I love what you said about um, that it took you, you know, even <clears> though that you were absolutely supportive and involved in all of the civil rights movement, I'm a product of the civil rights movement, so I know exactly what you mean. It took you a long time to realize whiteness. And um, there is a theory floating around in higher ed, it's kind of fancy, but it's called uh, hermeneutical injustice. It's people not having the resources to do their own meaning making. It's like, you know, you read in the paper and other people, you know, the academics or the providers will tell you what's going on with you, but don't, and there's no place for us to think, you know, well, what's happening to us? You know, is this happening to you? This is happening to me. And that's how the, actually the theory of historical trauma emerged out of uh, an Indian country. I mean, you know, Maria Braveheart is my beloved sister and, you know, uh, this theory of historical trauma came out when Persa and Samsa had all of this conference money and people were getting together three or four times a year and just talking to each other from different tribal communities and saying, well, this is happening here. Is that happening there? And they were coming up, they were doing their own meaning making. And it yeah. sounds like that's what, uh, you know, that's what it sounded like uh, you were saying when you realized whiteness. Can you say a little bit more about, you know, how you realized whiteness? Yeah. Well, I knew, um, I mean, one of the first things I did when I ran away to Berkeley from Pennsylvania in the early 70s was to join the Berkeley Women's Health Collective. And our, our Bible is autopsy on the AMA. I mean, I learned all this stuff about what was wrong with the healthcare system, including racism, a lot about misogyny and, and sexism as well. Um, and... Um, so it's not that I haven't been aware of some of the gaps, but, um, I think I couldn't really see, I couldn't perceive what the culture I'm in. And I think this is so common with white people that we we're unaware. We, we, um, we depend on people of color to point those things out to us, which is unpaid labor on their part. You know, it's that we need to be able to see what we're doing and the impact of our actions. And it's, it just, it's, we've been carefully taught not to see it. Yeah. Um, I think for a lot of reasons. And so it takes layer after layer of unwinding and I'm by no means finished with the process, but I feel like I'm, more aware than I have been in the past. And so I try to just be conscious of that in my everyday interactions of what my impact is and what the impact of the privilege that I carry. Nice. But it sounds like it was partly- it has to do with how we think, how we talk, anyway. I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. What did you say? I just said it has to do with how we think and how we talk and how we structure yeah. things. and. I anyway, think it's how we think, but I think it, it it even is letting go of the standard views of things, letting go of those standard views and whiteness is invisible, right? And we know just to be, you know, truthful, I think what whiteness was invented in uh, 1687 or something, you know, I mean, it's not a real thing, right? Uh, and, um, but so when you can let go and be away from those predominant ideas about understanding what your place in the world is and who you are, when you can get together with people who look like you and come up with a different idea of what's happening. I mean, I got that sense from all of your chapters that that was part of your process. And it was, uh, you know, getting, um, you know, letting go of just received views of how things are and how they're named and what the right process is. Back to spiritual earth-based, body-based awareness and letting, you know, the wisdom of that arise. It wasn't conceptual, it was almost like wisdom arising. That wasn't conceptual, it was like insights that you were having. I don't know if that's true or not. And Thank definitely get this book, it is incredible. So, I mean, I get the sense that your insights about whiteness and about, you know, how it's all played out, you know, it was 
you know, it was conceptual, but it was more, there was some other wisdom element. You know, in my spiritual tradition, we have conceptual knowledge and then we have intuitive awareness. I mean, we, when we're open to things and we can really look at things without the words of that's what this is and that's what that is, you know, wisdom arises about some deeper truth of how things work. And that's what, you know, I led that, you know, you talked about your spiritual practice and how that let you open to those deeper understandings and those deeper truths, truths which are what frees us. I mean, that's the healing part of it. That's what heals us is seeing the truth of those things. Yeah. As you're talking, Bonnie, I just want to um, just bring into visibility to acknowledge how these histories are in our bodies. Yes not only our own histories, but our generational histories. Absolutely. Our generational histories. So, you know, we likely had, didn't meet our great grandparents, but the lived histories in the previous generations are with us. And in our preparation for this conversation tonight, we had a couple nights ago in our conversations, the excerpt that Anne pulled out I just want to bring visibility to this that when you sent the email to me about the piece that you were that you read this evening, I read it and I'm like, oh, that's what happened in January at the Capitol. The, you know, an elected leader <clears throat> stirred up the crowd. Whiteness in the background authorized a volunteer militia to, you know, create, you know, wreak a violence toward other with a sense of goodness and innocence. And that is part of the American thing that we really have to reckon with here is this braid of whiteness and goodness and innocence being wound together. We have to unwind those. They're easily, unwound, they're easily unwound when we locate that our humanity comes from family. It doesn't come from whiteness. Whiteness is 360 degrees dehumanizing. White people are just the last people to the table to figure that out. But if we need any further evidence of that, all we've got to do is look at those impeachment hearings. So I don't know, Anne, if there's anything else you want to say about your great-great-grandfather, because I know you saw the same thing. We had the same moment of yeah, I, I, I was really tracking so many similarities, you know, that the um, stirring up of the, the crowd to go out and wreak just incredible havoc on the other. And the yeah. fear of the other lives so deeply yeah. in uh, our culture that we want to build border walls and we want to put um, the native people on reservations, you know, seal them away where we don't have to look at them anymore and they won't be able to be well, powerful. What we really want to do is for them to be extinct and not exist so we can have the land and not feel guilty about it. Yeah. Well, yeah. exactly. And whiteness requires, whiteness requires other. It does. By, de by definition. Yeah. Oh, here we do have some questions here. Oh, okay. Uh, but I just want to say that what I got hit from what you guys are saying that I think is really important and might be an enticement for people to investigate this is that they're getting played. You know, you're thinking about whiteness is giving you power, and you get to have all this land and stuff. You're getting played because there's no, there is very little sense of fulfillment and happiness there. You're getting played. You know. But anyway, so one of the questions is, can you speak to the meaning of the title of the book? Yeah, thank you for asking that. It comes up a lot and, and I think, you know, for good reason. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a fact, it's a fact that just, um, as I said earlier in the, in the work, I lead a lot of group, I work with a lot of groups and it just emerged from unembodied intuitive as Bonnie was describing it it emerged from a, from an intuitive embodied place working with groups and the effect I noticed the effect that it had which was that it both elicited the question you just asked which is what does that mean <laughs> and um, the 
the noticing in people's physical bodies when they hear the statement, there's a there's an effect, you know, there's there's an embodied reaction often to just the statement. And I think, you know, our Western world, our Western trained mind teaches us to disregard and disconnect from our embodied knowing. And so whiteness is not an ancestor means our human family has been around for, you know, tens of thousands of years and whiteness, yeah, 500, you know, <laughs> give or take. And so we, this part of the world in the US because of our history, we've just got disconnected from our humanity. So we're in a big process of reconnecting yeah. with um, the source of where life comes from and it's not from whiteness. Yeah. And uh, so that's a little bit about what that means. Yep, there's some other great questions here. One is, um, do you trace any of your ancestral trauma or harms onto their continent of origin, uh, Europe as well, or, or traumas carried just in, you know, colonial colonialism and yeah. The, thank you for that question. The essays for this anthology are from the US and Canada and the UK. And one of the great things about that is it shows us that whiteness um, actually has no boundaries. Whiteness has had a big effect um, with our colonial history globally. And so some of the stories, some of the essays really um, go into deep detail about um, European history, um, traumas that happen there, part of our human experience. It involves a lot of, it involves a lot of trauma. So. Um, some of the essays really get into um, the history of what happened, um, actually, both Canada and in Europe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, I'm on the board of White Awake, and that, yes. and you know, they have a training called Roots Deeper Than Whiteness. Yes. Very <laughs> good program. Yeah, that's what they talk about. They talk about, yeah, that actually a lot of the things, the traumas that were done uh, in the United States and in Canada or, you know, in this continent actually were done to people in Europe. Yeah. You know? yeah. People had their land taken from them. And yes, I have to say that the Proud Boys, you know, speaking of Seattle and current events and the topical nature of this book, some of our local um, Seattle area citizens who are also descendants and future ancestors had quite significant leadership roles in the riot. And when I look at the history of the Proud Boys, I see a big um, shout out to Scottish history. Wow. Yeah. The Proud Boy, who, the guy who started the Proud Boys, um, Gavin McInnes, I think, grew up in Canada, but he moved to Canada when he was four from England and his parents, his lineage is Scottish. Well, President Trump's mother was born in Scotland. There's a fair bit of tribal, Scottish tribal heritage operating there, I think. It's my suspicion with the, the sense, the drive to fight things out. Um, we could find another way to perhaps connect with our lineage rather than you know, burning down the capital and killing each other. It seems like there's gotta be another way would be my bias. <laughs> yeah, just to say one little fact about Donald Trump's ancestry, his Scottish mother mm -hmm. arrived here as a teenager as a um, indentured servant. Yes. And the reason she came to America is that her family was impoverished. Yes. Because their land was stolen by greedy landlords. Yes. And yeah. then she married. Yes. So it's just that's right. It, I, I really identify with that question and that. You yeah. know, it certainly doesn't excuse anything that yeah. settler settlers and settler descendants did, but it helps us understand something about where that comes from, that impulse to take. Yeah, it's an intergenerational. Yeah, it's intergenerational trauma. It's like absolutely traded on you, and you think that that's yeah. oh, that must be what makes people happy, right? You know, it's like well, it shapeshifts. 
yeah. it shape shifts from one generation, unhealed trauma shape shifts from one generation to the next. So one generation, you might be the victim, but then the next one, you're the perpetrator. Right. So it's two sides of the same coin, which is why we need each other yes. so deeply. Mm-hmm. And healing needs to happen. Yes. Let me see. We might have time for one quick more question. Let's see. Um, oh, yeah. How has this impacted all of this, um, you know, deeper understanding and feeling shame and guilt and wanting to be part of the uh, change of the system and the reparations? How has this affected your family relations? Mm. Great question. What about you, Anne? Mm. Well, I have a pretty large extended family. And some people um, just don't want to hear anything that I have to say about this. And others are all standing together with it. So um, I feel like it's brought those of us that really want to see the truth of what happened five generations ago. It's brought us closer together and has um, allowed us to really look at our family history within the larger context of what has happened in our country. So it, we are dedicated to not polarizing inside the family, but <laughs> it's, part of, it's part of what happens and um, part of the healing. Yeah. yeah. June, does everyone in your family approve what you do? <laughs> um, I, I think we're in a process of discovery and uncovering some of these truths. <clears throat> and I do feel a real openness you know, to different degrees, but I do feel a real openness toward, toward learning the truth. I'm the one in the family that's been most deeply involved in the, the traditional path of medicine. And so I'm the one who kind of dove in head first and has been digging around uncovering things. But I think, um, you know, my siblings have expressed openness to this and, and the next generation too. So I feel that gives me hope. No more doctors, though, yet. I mean, there were some in my, among my cousins, but. <laughs> you know, Bonnie, my granddaughter. Go ahead. Thank, thank you, June. Sorry. Go ahead. More? No, it's okay. Um, I also wanted to mention that my family, as a, as a small group of the family, has gotten together with different people of the Cheyenne and Arapaho. And that has been incredibly healing to sit, for our family members to sit and listen to what it's like for them now because of what happened five generations before. And so it's, it's not only my family, but it's the people that we're bonded with through that historical trauma. That, and I have sent my essay to some of my friends in the Cheyenne and Arapaho um, people and uh, I have yet to hear responses, but I trust that, that they're, they're just working through their own responses and they'll be honest with me. And that's yeah, what I yeah. trust about our relationships is we are honest with each other mm-hmm. and uh, know that the healing has to happen here and there, or yeah. it, there's no possibility for reparations to happen. Yes. Omi Takvias and all my relations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So well, Lisa, I, yeah. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, Bonnie. Well, we're out of time. And, you know, do you want to say any last words about, you know, this beautiful book, this incredibly powerful healing book that you pulled together? Mm, thank you. Um, just I want to say thank you to everybody who's here, all of us who are in conversation now, everybody who's listening and watching, everybody who will be to the recording. And, um, and I want to say that uh, it's doable. It's totally doable for us to do this. And um, it was palpable when we wrote this book last summer. It was a 10-week pro- writing project. I was pretty specific with the timeline. And so we wrote it in 10 weeks. And um, it was palpable from the first meeting that... Um, doing this with other people doing was new and important. And um, so deauthorizing whiteness is a group project. It's, we can do some things 
are meant to be done alone and other things are meant to do with others. This is something that we need others to do it with because of what it is. So um, I look forward to all of us, our whole country doing this together. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you, Bonnie, for joining us. Thank you. It's an honor. Yeah, and on behalf of Town Hall, I just want to thank you all for such a rich evening. Um, thank you so much, Bonnie, for kind of guiding this conversation. Um, thank you, Lisa, for following your, um, you know, your, your vision for this uh, anthology. And thank you, Anne and June, for your, your stories. I think it's just so powerful to tell these stories and it's really inspiring to me to, to just um, witness other people working through um, their family histories and uh, understanding their whiteness. So I really appreciate the work that you've done. Thank you. Thank you, Candace. Town Hall Seattle and Third Place Books presented this discussion on February 11th. To find the full event, and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thanks for listening. Tune in again soon.